Hello and welcome back to another edition of YCT Matters. This is Carol Platt-Lebow, the president of Yankee Institute, and today we honestly have a very special treat for you. And this is a voice from the Yankee Institute past, and I am going to ask you just to say hello, and we're going to see if anyone can recognize this fabulous voice from the past. Hello, Carol. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you guessed it. It is beloved Yankee Institute former policy director, Suzanne Bates. Hello, Suzanne. Hi, Carol. It's so good to be with you. It is a treat, a pleasure, and an honor to have you return for this special edition of YCT Matters. And before we launch into the policy discussion for which we have summoned you and you agreed to return, uh, please, let's update everyone about where you are, how you are, and what you are doing. Yeah, sure. I'm working at Deseret News in the, in Salt Lake City, and uh, so we're living in Utah now. The state is a little more functional than <laughs> Connecticut, but we miss we miss so many things about Connecticut, our friends there. And anyway, it's a great place and and we miss it. Well, we know Connecticut misses you. We have a wonderful policy director, but you always hold a special place in our hearts. And so it is a treat to get to have you on YCT Matters. Thank you. Uh, we actually you can speak with unparalleled authority about our topic today. We are talking about the fiscal guardrails. And Keith Faniff has published, as you know, a, a three-part series about this new discussion uh, that is being had by some legislators about whether or not to try and reform the guardrails uh, because some people are feeling as though they have been so successful and are putting aside so much money that they want to try and sort of work around them to get some of the money that's being set aside. You, Suzanne, were part of the Spending Cap Commission in 2017, I believe it was, um, that helped put together the guardrails that have, have worked for Connecticut. And I was hoping you could walk us through a little bit of what that was like, why it happened, what's being discussed, et cetera. Yeah, the, it's interesting. It, it feels like it's they people forget so quickly how bad things were in the 20 sort of 2015, 2016, the, right. that, those years, you know, the, the state was just constantly trying to catch up. Um, they were the pension systems were so underfunded. There was no surplus. You know, when you hit a bad year, it's like, what happens? We're, we're, close to crisis all the time. And we and the only thing would be to raise taxes, right? Right. And so and that's what we kept doing. The Governor Malloy years, it was bad. It was It was really awful. Bad. And I just I also just want to recall for the record, you and I weren't working together. We were not even as they say a gleam in each other's eye. But in 1991, we were reliably promised by the politicians that if a state income tax were imposed, all of these problems would be addressed. There would never be deficits. We would all be swimming in money. And yet by 2011, the situation was very different. Take it away, Suzanne. Right. They were just spending like crazy. And, you know, the state never really recovered from the 08 recession. Um, things were just such a mess. And I think finally, it's funny because the Republicans were kind of on board in the legislature, but it was really 2016, 2017, they were even in the Senate, Republicans and Democrats. And they said the 
some of the moderate Democrats were willing to do something about it finally. And so there was this constitutional spending gap that was put in the constitution, but it was never fully ratified. So in those years, they said, let's have a spending cap commission. Let's finally get this ratified. And they were able to do that. And they also put in some of these other guardrails where if, you know, if surpluses came in that instead of just spending it, they had to put it into savings or they had to, um, you know, pay down some of these pension liabilities. And, and it really, I mean, looking back, it made such a big difference. Those little changes that they made, those guardrails they put in, in those two years made such a huge difference. And it just feels like now we're going backwards. Right. And what what they've enabled Connecticut to do is to really, I think, save something like uh, 500 payments of 500 to 600 million dollars a year um, by what they've been able to put into the pensions. And and they they've made these additional they've saved us that amount of money per year going forward. Right. And I mean, the teacher's pension fund was, you know, sort of in the mid 50s back in the. 2016, 2017%, you know, funded and, and SERS was sort of in the low to mid forties. And so now they have, they have put more money into those systems. They're still not great. They're, they're still not well-funded, but it's, it has made a difference. It's brought down the cost of that every year and, and freed up some of that money. And that's not, you know, there, of course there are needs, but Connecticut likes to spend and, here we are. You you can't overspend your budget every year, right? I mean, saving makes sense. What if there is another recession? You need to have money to fall back on, but um doesn't seem like they learned their lesson. And, you know, that's what's really interesting because we keep hearing about the fact that now, you know, some politicians want to be able to get at some of the money that is currently being set aside as a result of these fiscal guardrails in place. And as you read this series, it sounds like, you know, we hear about these people in Connecticut, um, you know, like for example, the home, the home heating assistance, you know, people are cold and it's terrible. Of course it's terrible. I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking to think that there are areas of discretionary spending where, you know, there is need and need that that the state could address, but there isn't the money for it. Well, then you start getting into other areas. You start thinking, well, if there's, you know, people who are cold and they they need heating they can afford, why are we in an energy re regime where we have these renewable energy portfolios that make energy in Connecticut, some of the most expensive in the country, rather than trying to bust the fiscal guardrails, shouldn't we be looking at ways to make energy more affordable? Right. And that's, I think, one of the things that you see in Connecticut over and over again with what the legislature does is, you know, and this this was true when I lived there, and it's true now that they they put in place things that sort of make them feel good about themselves, but don't actually help people. And in fact, they hurt them and especially the middle class. Um, when you look at Connecticut, you've got a lot of wealthy people who enjoy the proximity to New York and enjoy some of the amenities Connecticut has to offer. And then you have poor, poor people and just not a lot of people in the middle. 
And you're not able to pull people out of poverty in Connecticut because of some of these problems, right? I mean, look, we all want clean air. We all want clean water. Of course. You know, but unfortunately, we are reliant for, I don't know, fortunately, we have energy sources that enable us to to have, you know, the energy that we need. And Connecticut has shut itself off from a lot of those sources and it's made it energy more expensive for its people. And you see this in so many of the areas. Like I was reading Keith Fanis' article and and thinking about, you know, the same problem that they had again 10 years ago where there's this battle between the state employees and what they're getting paid and the people who are working for the nonprofits that the state contracts with. So the the state pays its own employees so much and the benefits are so generous that they underfund the nonprofits. And so the people who are working for the nonprofits get paid pretty poorly and don't have great benefits, you know, and that's sort of, it's sort of the haves and the have nots instead of making sure that everybody gets what they need. And that's, you know, that's not good policy. It's not good long-term policy. No. And, uh, and, you know, you start seeing, um, what happens? I mean, you look down the road, you look at that kind of approach taken to extremes, and that's what's happened in California. They've hollowed out the middle class. Um, you know, people in California, the middle class has gone to Nevada, they've gone to Utah, they've gone to Texas. And then you do, you have the very rich and the very poor, but none of of the middle class that really holds a state together and makes it a good place to live. And right. that's exactly the kind of thing that you need to avoid in order to have a healthy functioning state. Well, and look, I mean, one of the things that Connecticut's benefiting from right now is what a mess New York City is, right? I mean, people were fleeing the city and coming into Connecticut. That helps Connecticut. But I mean, if Connecticut becomes a mess as well, that's not going to help, right? Right. So, right. you know, and if Connecticut or if New York City cleans up its act, this has sort of been a cyclical thing for Connecticut as well. When New York City is doing well and crime is low and people feel safe there and the schools are decent, they keep the, they stay there, you know, and Connecticut kind of loses out. And then it, when New York City is a mess, Connecticut benefits. So, I mean, look, Connecticut is going to have cyclical booms and busts because just that by nature of the population it has by nature of where it is geographically. And if you don't have these guardrails in place, if you're not saving for a rainy day, you're setting yourself up for some, you know, not fun budget sessions in the future. Right. Um, So, you know, as, as you've had time and a little bit of distance, I mean, you look on a lot of what Connecticut does. And have you had time to really reflect on this this whole way that Connecticut treats its state employees? I mean, it's never really been much of a matter of um, of the number of state employees. I mean, we don't have uh, a, an extraordinary number of state employees. It's really just the the kind of compensation that the state employees enjoy in Connecticut, correct? That's right. That's that was one of the things we figured out back then. Because at first we thought, oh, we just have too many. Our bureaucracies too, are too big, you know. And then as we compared ourselves to similar sized states, that wasn't the case. It really was the cost per employee, and a lot of that does have to do with, you know, the the pension benefits and the healthcare benefits that we offer. Um, and they've they've they did make some changes to those pension benefits, but because of the promises they made in the past, they're just so expensive. And you know, you look at the budget, 
15% of the budget still going to pensions. 15%. That's right. Extraordinary number, you know, of, of a state budget to have to go into the pension systems because they're still underfunded. Now, again, Connecticut is doing some smart things that like, I mean, Illinois, right? What a mess Illinois is and California, some of these other places. And Connecticut is at least trying. And I think back like to that, to that session, that extraordinary sort of, was it 2016 when Paul Doyle, do you remember Paul Doyle was state senator back then? He was a moderate Democrat. And they were passing this budget and it was the same old, same old spending. And Paul Doyle got up and gave a speech. Now I had just put in a frozen pizza for my kids. So that says something about what a great cook I am. But anyway, and he, he gets up and I, I was watching this from home and he's like, we can't do this. And it was, it was like the record scratch, you know, like, hang on what's happening. It was <laughs> for a dork who gets excited about the budget. It was very exciting. And he sort of said, we can't keep doing this. And it forced everyone to go back to the to the drawing table and sort through and, and allowed some of those moderate Democrats to really kind of say, you know, what do we need in order to stop this cyclical tax increases and budget deficits? And, and they made these smart choices that put Connecticut on such a better path. And when I think about them undoing that, what it took, you know, sort of that heroic moment and and what it took to get that past, the thought of them undoing that makes me really sad. <laughs> yeah. And and hopefully that, you know, hopefully cooler heads will prevail because um, you do think about things like that. And you think about a lot of this pressure coming from CBAC because they're due to negotiate pay increases. But as we know, this is where we were um, back in the day. I mean, it, it was the unions and the politicians who got together and mutually decided to underfund the pensions in return for upfront pay increases with no everybody kicking the can down the road nobody thinking about the fact that if down the road the whole system became unsustainable and collapsed guess who are not going to get the kind of retirements they were promised i mean these are promises that are made to people people make their life decisions based on them and you know what's to happen if the whole system becomes unsustainable. And it's really unfair to the people of a state. It's unfair to government workers who have certain expectations. And it's very unfair to taxpayers who then are called upon to generate inordinate sums of money to make up for, you know, these sort of uh, handshake deals that politicians and unions make um, to to get an upfront pay increase. And now that there are pay increases being considered for state employees' um, unions uh, this year, this is not a good reason to break down a system that's working. No. And that's especially, I mean, that's like a big warning sign, right? I mean, if that's, if the unions want to take advantage of this and try to push lawmakers, if they're going to break the, you know, sort of that barrier, um, break the glass, like, why would you break the glass in a year where it's not an emergency, right? But the unions, of course, are going to push them to do that so that they have some bargaining chips on the table moving forward. That's a good reason for lawmakers to say no to this. Now they have, like with the spending cap, they have to have, I can't remember if it's two thirds or three quarters of the, the legislature to over- Three fifths, yeah. 
Three-fifths, thank you, to overturn it. So, I mean, do Democrats have enough help me here, Carol? I'm not No, gonna... they don't. Um, they don't have enough to really uh, bust the caps, and they've agreed to hold on to the caps for five years, but what they're looking at is reinterpreting. Oh, gosh. Yeah. And so, I mean, and so, you know what reinterpreting means, Suzanne, because you remember how there was always discussion about what kind of spending properly fit under the caps. But you can essentially reinterpret a cap out of existence. I mean, if no kind of spending falls properly within the purview of a spending cap, then in effect, before you know it, a spending cap is meaningless. Right. Well, and that's, I mean, look, the rainy day fund and the the revenue caps, some of those other caps can be overturned with just a simple majority. So they could decide to vote that down. Um, I mean, I hope voters hold them accountable if they do that. But the spending cap is harder to get around. But, you know, then does the state make themselves vulnerable potentially to a lawsuit? You know, I mean, I, I, although we looked at ways, you know, it's difficult to sue the state for something like that. But I mean, that. I just think that that would be so unwise for them to try to to finagle their way around the caps and then maybe end up in court. Because, you know, we when we did the spending cap commission, we really discussed what that looked like, the revenues and the spending that would be under that cap. And um, I think the definitions were were good and hopefully robust enough to stop them from doing that. I hope. Yes, yes. And and that absolutely um, is the hope. And, you know, we were always pointing out other ways um, that the state could rework different items um, to to make um, to, you know, to to free up funds if people felt that funds were that urgent for things like the home heating program. Um, you know, um, I mean. In other words, you can rethink things. Um, I mean, I know you always had a number of examples of of ways that that some discretionary funds or even you know some of the ways things are allocated can always be rethought. There is always a way to find money. And so, you know, these examples that we're constantly seeing, for example, in the CT Mirror story about the home heating fund. Um, you know, there are ways to address urgent needs like that without going in and pulling from the spending cap. That's right. Well, and I mean, budget and a, a budget is an expression of your priorities. And so if the home heating fund is a priority for Connecticut lawmakers, they need to figure out a way to fund it. And they need to figure out what else maybe isn't as much of a priority this year. And so, you know, I think that there are always ways to do that. Um, But the people who are trying to get you to overspend are going to tell you that there isn't. And of course there is. Yes. And I think that's absolutely true. And part of it is is just having people who are willing to be committed and um, responsible about spending allocations. That's right. That's exactly right. And it's a tricky thing. Suzanne, we are very grateful to you for taking the time to revisit us and talk about your your experience on the Spending Cap Commission, a little walk down memory lane, and um, and generally about this whole discussion having to do with spending. Um, 
the fiscal guardrails and everything about fiscal continence by the legislature and everything else. And in fairness, I should point out Governor Lamont and Comptroller Scanlon have uh, said they want to keep the guardrails as is, and we really commend them for that. It's made a yeah, huge difference. Helpful. That that makes me hopeful. So that's good news. It's been so lovely to chat with you, and it's fun to think about all the good times that we had in Connecticut, and uh, you know the messes that we tried to help clean up. Look, I feel like we actually helped. Those few years that I was there and and working on this, I felt like we we made some difference, you and I, Carol, back in the day. And it was fun to work on that with you and with the well, Yankee Institute. Suzanne, I know for sure you made an enormous difference. And I know that where you are, um, you are continuing to make a difference. And you have earned the respect and affection of tons of people across the state of Connecticut, not just because of what you did, but because of the way you did it. And we miss you. We love you. Keep in touch. We wish you well. Thank you so much. All right. And uh, everybody, that was Yankee Institute's beloved former policy director, the one and only Suzanne Bates, now at Deseret Newspapers in Utah. So you can look for her there. Um, Suzanne, take very good care. We'll look forward to hopefully having you on again sometime soon. And this is Carol Platt-Lebow, president of Yankee Institute. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to having you with us again on another edition of YCT Matters. I'll show you